We're so glad to have the very first guest ever on Alma Am I Racist, Christian Smith. He has come back to join us, Christian A. Smith. He is a spiritual image developer. He looks at your inner and your outer. He's also the pastor and founder of the faith community and leader of Holy Smoke Cigars and Spirituality Movement. Now, Christian has recently written a book, Breaking All the Rules, which introduces Greatest Commandment Theology, which is an ancient framework for modern faith. To find out everything you need to know about Christian and about his book, you can go to Christian, that's K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-A, smith.com. So Christian, it's great to have you back again. Thank you for doing this. The book is fabulous. I've read it. I almost want to say I've read it twice because I skimmed through again. And the book is Breaking All the Rules, An Ancient Framework for Modern Faith by Christian A. Smith. ChristianASmith.com. Go there. Now, for those who don't know, will you explain what is the greatest commandment theology, the framework that holds your book? And your philosophy. So greatest commandment theology is rooted in the words of Jesus in the Gospels. It's reinforced all throughout scripture. But Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22, what's the greatest commandment in all of the law? And he said, the greatest commandment is that you love God with your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. And then the second part is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says everything in the law and everything in the prophets hinge on these two. That second verse is so important because many times people try to separate love for God and love for neighbor as self. And they say, you got to love God and, you know, take care of your neighbor later. But the first thing is you got to love God. But Jesus clearly says that everything hinges on these two, which means they come in tandem. They're a package deal. You can't take one without the other. So you can't love God if you don't love your neighbor as yourself. And the importance there is that it's not just love God and love neighbor. Jesus assumes the importance of love for self. But the church has stigmatized it, unfortunately, where we have conflated love for self with being self-absorbed and being self-centered. So I use the greatest commandment as the launching pad and landing point for anything I do theologically, ethically, or morally. Even when I get it wrong, because I still mess up, you know, I, I haven't figured everything out, but I run everything through the greatest commandment. And then that, that kind of frames the concepts of salvation and sin and evil and everything, all of that stuff for me runs through greatest commandment. So will you explain what the difference between being egotistical or self-absorbed, self-centered, selfish, all those negative connotations that we ascribe to self-love and explain what holy self-love is? That is a great question. So Self-love means I recognize the image of God inside of me. I honor and cherish the image of God inside of me. I also recognize that the image of God is in everyone around me, whether I like those people or not, whether those people like me or not. 
we all carry and bear the image of God. So it's important that I recognize that in myself so that I can honor myself. And then what is in me, I will project onto those around me. So if I have love in my heart for myself, I can only share that love with people around me. Also, when you love yourself, it compels you to treat other people right. It compels you to nourish meaningful relationships because as a human race, our sanity is dependent on relationships. If we go into the psychology of it all, I frequently, and I reference in the book, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Yes. If, if you love yourself, you will express that or you will act that out in how you relate to other people. So when people are arrogant and egotistical, it is generally rooted in an insecurity they have within themselves. And they're overcompensating for the lack of love that they actually have for themselves. I have found that to be very true. The, the know-it-all doesn't think he knows it all or she knows it all because they have to proclaim constantly. Okay, I'm going to go slightly, slightly off track here on something that dawned on me when you were talking about the three. They all depend on each other. The love for God, the love for self, and the love for neighbor. Right. Could that be like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Oh, you're hitting us with a little trinitarian theology there yeah, I, I man. Like that. Let's, let's go there <laughs> i've never i've never considered the the connection between father son and holy spirit but i think you can draw a parallel there if you you know if you want to connect some dots yeah that's that's really interesting i think of it in these terms i look at it the same way i look at maslow's hierarchy of needs so love for self is the foundation of the love ethic and love for God is the apex. It's at the top of the pyramid. And then love for neighbor is the bridge that connects the two. So I love myself at the foundation. And then I love my neighbor as the bridge that connects my love for self to my love for God. And all of it starts with God's undying love for me. We usually get uncomfortable with these conversations around love for self. But we really shouldn't because we proclaim that God unconditionally loves us. So when I say I love myself, I'm simply agreeing with God. I'm saying I love what God loves. So it starts with God's love for us. Our love for self is the foundation. Our love for neighbor is the bridge that connects us to our love for God at the apex. Perfect. Then, then the next conversation for two o'clock in the morning would be <laughs> which, which one's the Holy Spirit and which one is the Son. But when you describe it, it almost sounds like we would be the Son and they would be the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I, I, can, I can definitely see that the Holy Spirit is, is what connects. Because when I think Holy Spirit, I think energy. I use those two interchangeably a lot. In the church, that's a cardinal sin because we like to control the language. So we can talk about something in the church by a particular name. And that same activity will take place outside of the church by a different name and we'll condemn it because they do it under a different name. So I'll give you an example. In the book of Acts, 
Paul and Silas were thrown into prison or thrown into jail, it was as a result of Paul calling the spirit out of a slave girl who was considered a soothsayer. And she was going around telling everybody that Paul and Silas were true men of God and everybody needed to come and hear what they had to say. And she irritated Paul and Paul called the spirit out of her. But the reality is she was accurate. What she was saying was factual, but it made Paul uncomfortable because she did it under a different title. Where had she been doing it as a part of Paul's camp, she would have been considered a prophetess and not a soothsayer. In the church, we use the term spirit. And outside of the church, people use the term energy. But I believe we're talking about the same thing. And energy connects. Yes. But that kind of ties me into another piece of this. And is self-esteem can be directly tied to our trust of our own intuition and that God voice within us. Will you talk about that just a little bit? the importance of us listening to ourselves and how do we discern what's the God voice and what's the human voice? That's another great question because in many of our churches, we're taught not to trust ourselves. That goes back to that default question that I think we need to remove. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Right? Because when we have a thought or a feeling or an instinct or an intuition that does not align, with the rules that our faith tradition has put in place for us, then the default question is, what does the Bible say about that? And that's supposed to settle the entire matter. So forget what I'm feeling, forget what I'm thinking, forget my lived experiences, forget my reasoning, the evidence that is before me. I'm supposed to just cut it all off with what does the Bible say about that? So I believe that we need to transition to how does the greatest commandment apply here? Let's stop saying what does the Bible say about that as the end-all be-all question, but how does the greatest commandment apply here? So for a person who's trying to determine is that that inner voice from God or is is that selfishness? I, I believe the question needs to be how does the greatest commandment apply here? And to go deeper into that, you know, which is the framework I talk about in the book, to apply the greatest commandment in day-to-day life, we have to consider love for God is expressed through love for neighbor, which is a reflection of love for self. So if we want to unpack what it means to sin, because that's a key question, sin is anything that hurts me or hurts my neighbor because the first rule of love is do no harm so if i do harm to a thing i am sinning against it so every day you're trying to figure out what's that voice telling me ask yourself this question is this action or this thought that i'm having causing any harm to me secondly is it causing any harm to my neighbor aka my fellow human if it's not causing harm to me and it's not causing harm to my neighbor then i must ask myself the question why would i be convinced i'm harming god okay that's a great great explanation and i want to tie this back into a previous interview that we did and one of the things you said in that interview has been one of the most recognized pieces of any of the podcasts that I've done. 
Mm. When you said that white people tend to think I'm not racist, therefore I don't have to do anything and I have no culpability. Mm -hmm. So that person's thinking I'm not doing anybody any harm. I'm not doing myself any harm. I'm right with God. Everything's good with the world. Please explain the flaw in that theory. Yeah, that goes back to the apathy that we discussed because sometimes inaction is just as much as a sin as action. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell me more. Yeah, so when when we see harm, when we see brutality, when we see oppression, and we turn away from it, or we ignore it, or we try to rationalize it or justify it, we are causing harm to those whom we have the power to help. So you can't control everything. You can't change the entire world in one swoop. I tell everybody, you change the world one person at a time. If everybody decided they were going to be a world changer and they were going to start with one person, the whole world will be changed. So the first rule of love is do no harm. The second rule is to help. Just simply help where you can. And I think a lot of times we, we just overlook the areas where we can help. I think what you said is critical. Doing nothing is often doing harm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that, that cuts right to the core of it, Christian. Yeah, I mean, because you got you to gotta consider what is in your power to do. You know, a lot of people say, I'm, you know, I'm not racist because I don't do anything overtly racist. But if you're benefiting from a racist system and you do nothing to push back against that, then you're doing harm because you are you have become an integral part of that system that brutalizes others, that overlooks others, that disadvantages others. And that is a challenge for many people when it comes to racism and every other ism. We enjoy our position in the center. And anything that seeks to decenter us makes us uncomfortable. And we conflate discomfort with harm. That's where a lot of people get hung up in this greatest commandment theology framework, where we think because something makes us uncomfortable that that person is harming us. No, yeah, there's a difference between discomfort and harm. Sacrificing privilege is not harm, but it is uncomfortable. Speak to that a little bit more, if you would, because I do think uh, the word privilege tends to raise the hackles on the back of a lot of white people's neck. It does. And white people are not alone. Every privileged person struggles with this. There, there is no privilege quite like white privilege or male privilege or a combination of the two that have plagued the fabric of America since its inception. So privilege does not mean you're a bad person. It's not a moral judgment of who you are. It simply means there's some things you just haven't had to experience just based on the makeup of your humanity and how society sees that. There are, there are some experiences that I will never have as a man because I'm a man 
So I can identify with the struggles that women go through. That is my privilege. That doesn't make me a bad person. I'm a man. <laughs> so when you're white, you can't help that you're white. It's just important that you recognize there are some experiences you will never have because you are white. And you should listen to and believe the stories of black people when they tell you their truth. And don't run to those outlier black people who only confirm your bias. Oh my God, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I just can't be his friend anymore. I'm so bummed. I know. Morgan Freeman, Herschel Walker, what happened? They drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah, it, that, that, that happens very easily when black people attain wealth and uh, popularity because there are certain levels of racism you can buy yourself out of. And then we have this exceptional Negro syndrome. Well, look, I made it, you know, so anybody can make it. And it's like, well, Morgan Freeman, everybody doesn't have otherworldly talent like that in an area that society deems important. Like everybody, I believe everybody has a gift from God, something that they can do. No one else can do like them. But society does not put the same weight on all of those gifts. So if you are an incredible actor, you can make a whole lot more than somebody who's just an incredible helper. Right. But that, that person who's incredible at helping, that's an important role, too. You just don't make a lot of money for it. So you get people like a Morgan Freeman or a Herschel Walker or a myriad of other names who almost look at it like, well, I made it so anybody else can make it and I don't want to hear anything about racism. And it just takes that one time. It just takes it just takes that one time for them to run up on the wrong cop who doesn't know who they are and just sees another nigga. And I, I, I use that word intentionally because I wanted it to, to I could hit. Tell you did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because that's exactly what you are when people don't know about your fame or people don't know about your money they, they don't care you're just another one of us and so there there are certain levels of racism you can earn your way out of but you can't earn your way out of all racism that is so true one of the things we talked about in the last interview was boundaries and how important they are and i would like for you to talk about boundaries being a form of self-love and how that not only benefits us, but it benefits the people that we love and our neighbors that maybe we don't even know. Sure. I actually preached at my church over the weekend on a text where Jesus says, you've heard it, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy and pray for those that persecute you. And many times we look at that text and assume we're supposed to allow our enemy to treat us however they want. Like, well, Jesus says you got to love your enemy. So, you know, whatever they do, you just got to take it. And Jesus says, pray for your enemy. So, you know, we always got to pray that God takes care of our enemies and God prospers our enemies. People just go to such great lengths. And there there are two things there. Jesus does say, pray for your enemy. Jesus does not tell us what to pray. And there are a lot of things you can pray. And there are a lot of biblical examples. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
of things that you right, lay it on me then yeah well, i mean you know you can you can pray that god protect your enemy or you can pray that god persecute your enemy it's all in the bible and this this is for people who stick to a straight reading of scripture it's all in there whether you've read it or not it's not my problem that's your problem if you haven't read it but it's in there i'm just pointing out to you what's in there <clears throat> but generally we only emphasize certain scriptures so we only emphasize the good prayers that are all happy and god bless everybody but what about the prayers where David says, I want you to take the life of my enemy and make his wife a widow and make his children orphans and make them wander the streets begging, but don't let anybody help them and, and let that be his legacy. What do we do with prayers like that, like Psalm 109, if we're going to be honest in our prayers? And sometimes that's how we feel. That's how we feel in our prayers. Like, God, this person is horrible to me. This person is terrible to me. And I want you to get them off of me. I want them to leave me alone. I want you to do whatever you got to do to get them away from me. That's an honest prayer. And you have all types of evidence and support within the Bible for praying prayers like that. So this goes back to the boundary question. Sometimes we got to establish boundaries in our prayers that the boundary for my prayer is I'm not going to pray dishonest prayers because my church told me I had to. Oh, very interesting. And then, you know, it says, love your enemy. We'll take that to mean that we should always be nice to and engage our enemy. Sometimes loving my enemy means I need to resist the evil they inflict upon me because I'm not allowing myself to be harmed right? That's the boundary that I set. I love myself enough. I'm not going to continue to allow myself to be harmed. And then in doing that, I also love my enemy because I'm not going to allow them to continue in their sin and how they treat me. Ooh. So it's like a double whammy. Yes. Of help. Yes. You're helping yourself and you're helping them because you're stopping them from their sin. Absolutely. James Baldwin talks about what happens to the soul of the oppressor. And James Baldwin believes that what happens to the soul of the oppressor is much worse than what happens to the body of the oppressed. So if the oppressor can brutalize the body of the oppressed, really what happens to that person's soul is so much worse that they have literally killed their own soul in that process. And I refuse to continually allow someone to oppress my body and kill their own soul. So I establish my boundary. You can't do this to me anymore. Now, whatever is going on inside of you that you need to work on, you work on that. But you're not going to project that onto me anymore. Your insecurities, your internal self-loathing, you need to deal with that. And I'm not going to be the one that you can project that onto any further. And it kind of reminds me of a couple of things. Detach with love. Okay, you can love the alcoholic, but you need to detach. And as a mom, I think about tough love. Like, mm -hmm. And I told my children, I said, you don't understand. I really do not like giving you consequences. Mm -hmm. I get no pleasure in it. It actually makes me mad that you're going to make me do that. Mm -hmm. But for your own good, these are the rules. You violated the rules. I told you this was the consequence. I have to stick with the consequence. And it is not fun 
I would rather be all the lovey-dovey, like, oh, darling, I love you so much. But that doesn't help anybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because we're talking about breaking all the rules. And you just mentioned the rules that you establish and how they need to be followed and how there will be consequences. And I think that's important because what you said is not antithetical to the book Breaking All the Rules. The question that must be asked is, what principles do the rules uphold? So you've established rules in your home based on a principle of reciprocity, based on a principle of mutual mutuality and respect. So this rule is to establish a boundary of respect, mutuality, reciprocity. That's an important principle to uphold. So it's good to put a rule around that principle. And if somebody goes against that and undermines the spirit of love, the spirit of mutuality and respect in this household, then yes, there are consequences. And that is a rule that we should maintain. Well, thank you. My (laughs) daughter said, now I know what you mean about you took no pleasure. She said, I truly thought secretly you liked punishing us. Oh, man. I said, no, it's horrible. It's so not fun. Yeah. Okay, so we're kind of on this same, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself and boundaries. And one of the things that comes up in your book is agreeing to disagree. Yeah. Talk about that, please, Christian, because I struggle with this, especially in the racial climate that we're living in, the political climate that we're living in. Ooh, so in my church, the faith community, we agree to disagree all the time. We don't agree on everything. And anybody from my church will be the first person to tell you that we don't require agreement on every component. What we do require is that we agree that we're all going in the same direction and that we're all trying to reach the same destination. And I can't even really say destination because life is a a journey. (laughs) There really is no destination. We're just taking a journey. There's a a passage in uh, the book of Amos that many people in the church have used out of context. And it says, how can two walk together unless they agree? And that's usually how it's quoted. And it's quoted in a way to guilt people into seeing it our way, right? So if you can't agree with me on this, then there's no way we can walk together. But what the passage is literally saying, if you go read it for yourself, because many people haven't, go read it. It's in Amos. What it's literally saying is how can two people walk together unless they agree to walk together? That's all it's saying. It's not saying that you will agree on every aspect of the journey you're taking. What you're agreeing, what you're agreeing to is even as we disagree, We're going to take this journey together because we recognize we are together. We're not at odds. We're going on a journey together, which means I need to hear how this journey affects you. I need to hear what ideas you have about this journey, and you need to hear the same from me. The problem is when we think we're not on a journey, but we're in a competition. And that's the problem that we see in a lot of these racial discussions. There's a competition in a lot of these racial discussions where one person doesn't want to lose and the other person is determined to win. So we're not even on the same journey. We're fighting against each other. So we have to figure out how can we come together and hear one another, truly hear one another. 
and listen, not just listen for the sake of developing a rebuttal, but listen to understand. So I am cool with people that disagree with me. What I will not accept is you having a disagreement that is rooted in my lack of humanity and inability to freely exist. Ooh, okay, that's a little heavy and slightly esoteric. <laughs> so can you put that in layman's terms for us? Yeah, hey, I want to accept disagreements. And uh, Son of Baldwin is a, the gentleman that dubbed that, that line. We can agree to disagree unless your disagreement is rooted in my lack of humanity and diminishes my right to exist. Right. So I can't just say agree to disagree with someone who completely denies the reality of police brutality. I can't. I'm not going to agree to disagree. Thank you. Okay, You're a liar. I'm in, I'm in that situation. Yeah. Somebody that I care about does not believe that shooting somebody seven times in the back or killing Breonna Taylor in her bed is police brutality. Somehow yeah. it was deserved. So that is the point where I cannot agree to disagree. Yeah, I can't. I can't because my life is on the line at that point. And for you, the lives of people that you love are on the line, right? So I can't just simply agree to disagree when your disagreement literally puts my life on the line. Because what if everybody came together and said, you know what? Cops should stop killing people at the rate that they are. And if they do kill people, they should be held accountable. That is a simple request. That is what Black people have been requesting since the Black Lives Matter movement started and, and beyond. But we said we want cops to stop killing us at disproportionate rates. And when they do kill us, we want them to be held accountable. And the entire country descended into chaos. I'm not going to just agree to disagree on a matter like that. Okay, thank you. That helps. That helps because, and what I loved about that phrase that you pointed out from Amos was really, it's like if you and I are walking to the Capitol, we have to agree that we're both walking to the Capitol. Yeah. I can't go off to Centennial Park and you go to Georgia Tech. We have right. to agree. But that's it. If we're on a journey, we have to agree that we're going to the same place. Mm -hmm. That's now, it. Along the way, you may have a superstition that we shouldn't split a pole. And I really don't care about that superstition, right? So one time we may split the pole, the next time we may not. It all depends. But we're still going in the same direction. Let's figure out what, what direction we're going in and then figure it out from there. Well, and I think it's like being in a marriage. You don't always agree, but you agree you're together right. and that you're moving forward on this journey, whatever it is. Absolutely. And yes, and sometimes somebody wants to go to Centennial Park and somebody wants to go to the Capitol, and then you decide, is that okay? You go to the Capitol, I'll go to Centennial Park, but we'll meet up at uh, the aquarium. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I got, I got like messed up on my geography there. No, I uh, love it. In your book, Breaking All the Rules by Christian A. Smith <laughs> at ChristianASmith.com. Spoken like a true radio person, huh? Yes, There's I love it. Seriously, though, Christian, thank you for being with us today. You can go to Christian, K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, 
A as in Apple Smith. ChristianASmith.com. You can find out everything about Christian. You can get a copy of his book that we've been talking about today, Breaking All the Rules. And we're going to have Christian back to finish this discussion because there's a lot more to unpack here. So thank you so much for being with us, ChristianASmith.com. This is Lisa Smith Henderson, no relation, wish I were. To find out more about what we do, you can go to Alma amiracist.com. If you'd like to send me an email, almaamiracist at gmail.com. Until next week when we join Christian Smith again, thanks for listening.